to Lead Generation Strategies for B2B Tech Companies, a podcast by Brightvision. Here, you will learn how to generate great leads from the most experienced B2B sales and marketing people. Your host today, and always, is Jakob Levenbrand, CEO at Brightvision. Let's get started. Hello there, and welcome to today's episode of the Lead Generation uh, Podcast. I'm Jacob Lovenbrand, Managing Director of Bright Vision, and today I have the privilege to have uh, Chris uh, <coughs> Green with us here, who is the Head of Marketing of Innovation at Footprint Digital. Chris is also a sought-after speaker and have been participating as a thought leader around SEO at many different events like State of Digital, Optimize, Sascon, etc. Hello, Chris. How are you? And Hello. welcome to the show. Yeah. Hi. I'm, I'm good. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. So good, good. to have you here with us. Should we start off a little bit with uh, your background and who you are? And uh, yeah, and so sure on. thing. Yeah. My background. Um, <clears throat> I don't. I mean, I've been in the sort of SEO and search marketing business for sort of getting on for 10 years now. Um, my, my, I got into it by, um, as a copywriter, um, not a great copywriter if I'm being really honest. And, uh, I, um, talked my way into a job, um, doing SEO and paid search. I was lucky. I knew more than the guy hiring me. Um, and, uh, well, yeah, then had the opportunity to learn on the job. Um, and, you know, the rest is kind of history in a, in a weird sort of way. I sort of moved into tech SEO um, more specifically and then along the way doing paid search, um, web analytics, tag management, through to marketing strategy and more recently um, managing my own team. Um, and now my kind of taken a, a sort of a little bit of a different track in the sense that I do a lot more teaching, um, a lot of train, do a lot of webinars, do a lot of research. Um, I just kind of get paid to point at screens and talk about SEO and um, search marketing, which is which is really cool because it's something I get a lot out of. Yeah, that's a fantastic background and an interesting career you got there. So uh, what is so fascinating with SEO as an area that you have, uh, yeah, that kept you going I mean, and getting deeper in this? I think uh, for me it's... Um, I love problem solving as a as a kind of thing. Um, it doesn't have to be SEO specifically, but the thing with SEO and the particular affinity to it is it changes a lot. Um, not always massively, and I think to some degree the amount of change SEO goes through gets maybe overplayed a little bit. But fundamentally, every day is a new challenge, um, and they're as diverse as the clients you work on. Um, the demands of the business, the technical implementation, and then you add in uh, Google into the mix um, that just keep you on your toes anyway. So I think for me, having that that kind of um, constant evolving challenge. Um, and the other part about SEO is um, as an industry, um, you don't you don't really necessarily do an SEO qualification and you don't go through school thinking one day I'll optimize for Google. You, it's kind of a job that people tend to fall into, myself included. Um, but the type of person that gets into it, they're often really interesting people themselves. They're often really generous with their time, their knowledge. Um, I really get a buzz out of the community. Um, you know, just people kind of sharing ideas, bouncing off each other. Um, and it's just, you know, it just means that the last 10 years has gone really quickly and, uh, um, you know, never a same day. 
Yeah, interesting. And um, since we're a B2B focused uh, podcast here, uh, giving out uh, insights and tips around B2B marketing, I know for a fact that there's quite a few B2B marketeers that have not explored SEO so much yet. So for a beginner, how would you define SEO as a area of competence today? And uh, yeah, I think I think I think at the most basic level, it's um, ensuring that your businesses um, are found or findable uh, online via you know search engines. Broadly speaking, um, you know, being more visible online, um, the the main goal is often um, you know, more traffic, more leads, mm. more business. Um, the way that you would maybe um, distinguish SEO from sort of paid search using Google Ads or similar is. You know, SEO is thought of as the, the free method of gaining traffic. Um, now, if you could see me, I was doing free in air quotes because it's if you're paying someone to do SEO, it's not free <laughs> for obvious reasons. But the idea being is that if you can kind of build a presence online that Google can recognize as being of high value to your end user, um, you will be visible even when you're not paying um, ad spend or ad budget out. So I think that that said, it's at kind of most simplistic level. I mean, a lot of people debate what SEO really is, and there's this kind of almost constant sort of existential question around it. Um, some people think of it as um, you know trying to get around Google, um, and some SE, some people may perceive SEO as, as cheating the system or finding workarounds or tricks, which I would argue possibly had more of a place in SEO. Um, five plus years ago, but there is still that element now. I think for brands, for businesses who um, want to kind of build a presence online based on value, SEO is much more about, well, how do we understand the machines, the, the search engines that our users will use to find us as the business? And then how do we make sure that the value that we as a business can provide is easily visible and understandable. So very often, you know, SEOs are, you know, technical, they're, they're often in the websites, they're changing codes, um, setting up tracking, um, kind of optimizing that process from, from an end-to-end -end perspective. So um, it can be as many things to as many people, but I think SEO in a B2B space is um, really kind of crucial if, if you're a company that recognizes that people may one day search Google and when that person does, you want to be visible for whatever they search for, then you need to engage with SEO at some uh, way, shape or form. Yeah, thanks for that description. That's, that's really good for, for persons who haven't been uh, in the SEO space <laughs> for a while to, to get that around. And for those who have been there for a while and, and have been trying to improve in this area, I know there's a lot of trends going back and forth and uh, to some extent also depending on what Google is up to and their latest algorithm releases and so on. Uh, so what do you see, what are, what are the major implications and changes that we have seen the last year and where are we going in 2020 as you see it in, in the SEO space? Mm. I think if we look back over the last year, I think they're probably the, the largest change um, that we kind of really witnessed was um, Google implementing BERT. Um, and don't ask me, I can always forget the, what BERT, BERT is an acronym, but effectively um, Google's BERT update was increasing um, the understanding that um, Google has over the query or the search term, whatever someone uses. Um, one of the, the big kind of trends we've seen within SEO quite a lot recently is that um, 
so dial back 10 years and um, search engines weren't that great then. They were quite, they're relatively unsophisticated and you'd have to be really, um, you kind of have to think about how you'd actually search for what it is you're looking for. You, you'd often have to search in a fairly unnatural f- fashion and it would be, I don't know, um, say if you wanted to get a, a pizza and you were you know, in London, you would just search for pizza London or best pizza London or something similar. And they'd be really quite basic. Um, whereas now searches are um, much more based, you know, which uh, best pizza restaurant near me or pizza delivery near me or what's open nearby. And a lot of these search terms are becoming much more fluid. And the thing that Google and all search engines find is actually understanding the, the intent, what someone wants behind what they search for is really hard because broadly speaking, language is complex and machines um, have been quite poor at understanding it. So, um, but as a as an update, as a, a piece of technology that they've launched um, within um, kind of machine learning, information retrieval, and those sort of spheres, but has been um, a concept or something that people are already quite familiar of. Um, and this year, or last year, sorry, is when um, the BERT model was applied to search, um, <clears throat> and it's kind of a, a form of natural language processing, which just means that um, the technology. Um, can be trained to answer questions really effectively in a, in a, in a really basic level. I stress that that's not my uh, primary area of expertise, but what that means for businesses and people is, uh, or websites online is Google can far better understand what someone is actually looking for and can answer very specific uh, technical or complex questions with a far greater accuracy than they ever could. Um, so if you are someone who operates in a space that is quite complicated, that, that requires specialist knowledge to really understand, um, but means that the chances are users will find your content better. Um, now on the flip side is, um, if you were benefiting from the old model whereby Google wasn't actually that accurate, um, but may mean that you start to be less visible for some of these queries. Um, but that's kind of the give and take nature of, of algorithm updates and changes. Um, but this, the, the larger point above the technology itself that we took note of in SEO is just Google's constant obsession with better understanding the search, <coughs> better understanding what the actual goal is. Um, and broadly speaking, as long as you know, Google is progressing in that area, the quality of search results tend to increase. Um, and more and more people continue to use search, which is kind of a key part, really, about that. So um, <clears throat> it's kind of a big change in, in the sense of changes in big algorithm updates that SEOs tend to be fixated over. The era of um, what we'd call named updates. So I don't know if um, sort of penguin, panda, uh, hummingbirds, elements like that. <clears throat> they kind of are of yesterday, um, or not of yesterday, but they're of the last generation of SEO. Google no longer names updates in this fashion um, and because of machine learning and artificial intelligence big updates that change everything overnight are nowhere near as prominent or frequent as they used to be um, google iterates a lot more changes um, it makes about i think seven to nine algorithm updates a day on average um, so just for context if anyone asks the question have you heard about the new google update the, your response really needs to be which one because there are so many um, and Google only confirms a very small percentage of them. Um, and they typically call them um, a broad core update and just reference that, that it, these updates are part of their never-ending sort of journey to 
improve the quality of results for the user. So, um, you know, five to 10 years ago, people were so much more fixated on the algorithm updates of understanding exactly what they were because it was easier. Um, over the last two or three years, Google doesn't publicize or give information about the updates with anywhere near as much detail as they used to because fundamentally the more detail they give uh, SEOs and marketers in general, the greater scope there is for either A, misunderstanding, or B, slightly worse, uh, for people to game the system more effectively. If you knew what changed exactly, you would then know how to sort of circumvent that change or perhaps uh, trick it again. So <clears throat> that's kind of where we are up till now, I'd say. I think in terms of what's big in 2020 um, and what do we really need to be looking at, I think a lot of elements that we're here continuing amounts about is um, uh, schema and structured data. So um, this is methods by which you can mark up elements on your page within the code. So Google or other machines can understand far easier what is on your page. So uh, a great example would be if you're a website that um, had recipes, um, you would mark up the recipe with special code. So Google knows what are the ingredients, how many servings it's for, how long does it take to make, what are the ratings of it, um, and far other besides. Uh, same with events. So if you were organizing a local event, you tell Google when it is, where it is, and where to register for tickets. Um, and why this is important for website owners is um, these, this information is being pulled into Google search results in, in more and interesting ways. Um, so your result, when someone searches for something and sees your website, there's a far greater chance they will see a more interesting or in-depth uh, piece of information pertaining to your website. So, for example, event dates or recipe details can actually be sat within search results, um, which, you know, if you're the only one within your, your space, if none of your competitors have started really engaging with this, it actually gives quite a good opportunity to gain some additional visibility that others might not have. Um, so I think that it's been, structured data has been something that we've been talking about for a while, um, but certainly people, uh, we're seeing changes to how Google are interpreting this all the time and that's only but gonna get bigger. Um, I think the the other kind of big thing that we need to be really preoccupied about is um, actually just fundamentally how do we add value um, on our websites with search, um, and the main reason why you know the focus should always have been there, right? You know, any business with any website should always been preoccupied with giving the user what they need and what they want. But sadly, because of SEO back in the early days, um, cheating the system was easier than providing value for many. Um, so Google has had effectively had to change the landscape by which it only rewards value and it doesn't reward cheating. So actually just this preoccupation of what does your searcher actually want? What does your customer need at this point in time when they're making a particular search, which involves businesses need to understand the customer's anxieties better, their motivators, and actually how people search to buy things. Um, in the B2B space, quite often purchase decisions are quite long. It could be weeks or months before someone actually makes decisions. So the emphasis on businesses is really understanding, well, what is that journey that customer goes through? Um, and the SEO would get involved by saying, well, this is how they undertake that journey online. So whether it's um, interacting with Google uh, or YouTube potentially, or even Amazon and other networks, um, you just need to make sure your business is visible at the key points in that, um, in that process. So I think that's, for me, and certainly the advice that I give to clients and, and colleagues, that's what I keep 
sort of you know driving home with people that's what's going to make the business succeed online where others won't well that's a great uh, explanation and uh, very interesting insights you're uh, <clears throat> providing here what's going on so um to summarize that if you're a practicing marketeer we should focus on one to code our data and our content more structured in alignment to google's uh, tagging of uh, events for example and other things and also trying to provide better value or is there anything else you would recommend a marketeer to put their money or where to invest for the coming year uh, around increasing seo ranking yeah i think um i mean seo can be thought of uh, really simply in, in in a number of ways i think there's the first one is um and this is the kind of the foundational point is do you have a website that google can find or well, not just google but other search engines can find and can these search engines understand the content that's on there so um and the part of seo that's really preoccupied with that is what we'd call technical seo and that's that's very much still a, a quite a skilled sort of focus in that you do need quite a bit of training experience but for the everyday i say everyday marketer or for the marketer who's responsible for more than just that i think the next two points to really focus on and in my 10 years of work in seo these are still often the key factors is what is the content that is on your website what does it tell users how does it satisfy their intent so that's a key one and the vast majority of campaigns that i see see that don't work they very often don't have content which is of value um and that's a really easy one to fix you just have to be really honest with yourself and be so who else is in my space um you know who are my competition how well are they doing it um and that requires a bit of objectivity and it requires you sometimes to be quite critical of your own work very often if you if you as the marketer have been kind of formulating your website and content for the last year um and it's not up to scratch it's not always easy to see that so um but <clears throat> if you can nail that bit that's pretty strong and then the next part so the technical seo makes it so that website uh, search engines can properly see your website the, the other element that google really needs is to recognize that your website is is an authority is trusted is popular um and one of the methods by which you can do that is is getting links from other relevant highly authoritative websites um this approach is what we'd often call link building um but you know we moved back sort of five or so years maybe more the the onus on link building was far less about adding value and it was more of how could you cheaply and easily build artificial links that might fool google um google is much harder to fool now it's not to say it can't be done because a lot of people still are but for businesses and marketers trying to do the right thing um a strategy based on fooling or tricking google will eventually come back and get you caught out which no one ever really wants especially not on their watch so um i think for marketers realistically you know get your content as solid as it can once you've done that then go out and do your best to show everyone else your content um work in partnerships if you've got research or data that nobody else has make as much of it as you can because that sort of thing will pay off you do become recognized for being an authority in your space um and fundamentally customers want to work with knowledgeable people more often than not so you know at worst you're going to end up with some great content that shows everybody how good you are um and then the all the marketers really need to be focusing on is how do we get the word out <coughs> which is actually relatively straightforward in comparison to the rest 
Oh yeah, that's perfect. Nah, so um, I hope everybody who listens uh, will take those advices. But there, you were mentioning one thing there uh, around backlinking and so on, and you can actually do things that will punish your ranking. What are the the key factors that you need to avoid in order not to be, you know, <laughs> punished? Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah. So. Um, <coughs> So Google isn't as um, trigger happy with penalizing people as it used to be, but I've worked on uh, accounts or helped websites recover from um, these penalties that Google can issue. And I can tell you that you definitely don't want this to happen <laughs> because if you, you know, even if your business is, you know, I think the quickest I've managed to recover a website from those kind of penalties is about 10 days. But even so, if you're a business that makes money online, um, you know, 10 days of having effectively no visibility can can really hurt. So <clears throat> no one's going to risk that. I think the rule of thumb now or what we tend to go by, or certainly what I tend to go by, not everyone agrees, but the easier a link is to get, usually the less value it actually has. And that's that sounds, and basically it's, if anybody else could go out and get that link, i.e. By, by paying a small amount of money or because the, the link is easy to acquire, um, there's a far like there's a greater likelihood that lots of other your competitors have access to that and when they acquire that link in that same way you know the benefit that you've got from it will, will effectively be ruled out so um some of the best links i find are built via sort of relationships and exchanges of value and what i mean by that is so um working with universities to co-publish research papers or if you're speaking at industry conferences and you get sort of links back from the conference organizers or various other things like that these are these are links that you need to build but more more than just because you can acquire the link itself there has to be some other element of of content or quality there um they are they are the best um they are often the hardest to to build um <clears throat> now that's not to say that that's the only links that you can build i think there are many so um any business that operates locally you you're going to have partners or other businesses that you work closely with um you know, getting links from those, you know, even just sort of writing testimonials and, um, you know, referring each other business or talking about each other on blogs, those kind of tactics can still work pretty well um, if, it, if it kind of makes sense and there's, you know, it makes sense to do so. Even down to um, businesses that do sponsorship or any kind of CSR work or, <clears throat> um, you know, graduate schemes or sponsorships or anything like that, you most probably can get a link out of that. And in my experience, lots of businesses never ask. Um, and very often it's a case of, would you mind linking back to our website? We have more information that your users may find valuable. Um, if everybody did that more regularly, if, if all, marketers are really good at generating publicity and PR usually, but they very often don't get the link. And by rights, that link should be yours. And that's what you do need to acquire it. So, um, what you definitely shouldn't be doing is going onto a website like Fiverr or um, any of these kind of freelance or, or cheap um, websites and, and just buying links in bulk. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you still, I still see listings of Panda safe links or Hummingbird safe links or, you know, $5. It's like, well, if you buy anything for $5, it's probably not going to be that good. Um, if you think about it, you know, a lot of B2Bs, you know, a, a customer could be worth, you know, Quite considerably more than five dollars. So actually, you know, just look at your your kind of marketing relative to to what your customers are worth to you, um, and roughly spend accordingly. There's no silver bullet in my experience. Yeah, 
<laughs> interesting. Yeah, and uh, that's that's probably something that you need to keep up with the experts, uh, similar to yourself, all the time because yeah, it's complex to know what's valid or not. And I know one thing that you're especially an expert in uh, that many marketeers feel are really complex, and it's uh, when you come to the issue of updating or migrating your website, which is maybe the perfect storm from an SEO perspective. <laughs> oh, it's yes. easy to, yeah. <laughs> to lose track of all your uh, long-term build-ups uh, and so on. So um, yeah, I know you have a great PowerPoint deck online of 156 slides there describing what to think about. So, yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, I think you have great expertise there. But to to summarize a very broad topic, uh, what should a marketeer that is about to launch into this journey of migrating their website think about? And what what are the top five mistakes they should avoid? Ah, uh, yes. So I think the biggest thing that um, you need to have in mind when someone talks about a new website is, or even migrating from from one domain to another is, they're exciting periods of change in any kind of organization and usually they're done for the better, right? We're upgrading our functionality, we can better serve our customers, rebranding, you know, these are all really exciting, quite invigorating events in any marketer's calendar. Um, but the sobering element of that is it's also the opportunity where you can lose all of your hard work to, to date um, or large portions of it. And it's it's one of these areas that you don't know it could be a problem unless you know. It's... it's um, <clears throat> and if you, you know, usually when someone needs a website, they'll go to a web developer or maybe a branding agency, maybe a designer. Um, most people very rarely go to uh, an SEO or a sort of a digital marketer, sort of more generally. Um, and what that often means is very little consideration is placed on the, actually how do we migrate the website properly? How do we retain the rankings and the traffic that we currently get from search engines? Um, and, you know, at some point in the process, someone will mention that quite often will be the developer because the developer is the one that's implementing the stuff at the end. Um, and that's when you're kind of faced with a real tough decision is, OK, well, we need to get someone who knows what they're talking about here. Um, firstly, that can be hard because it's quite a specific area of expertise. Um, Secondly, the, the cost, you know, budgets have already been signed off, um, especially if your project is running late or is over budget. How do you then convince your stakeholders to invest more in bringing in a new expert? Um, and then actually, you know, if an SEO is brought in uh, at the 11th hour or the final stages of a project, sometimes some of the decisions that may cause the migration to go badly have already been made and can't change. Um, so <clears throat> that's some ways that they can go wrong. I think the, in terms of how to, um, how to get a migration done right is, well, to, to kind of consider that from the very start. So um, very often, with, with, you know, when you're kind of looking at your website and your website's performance and you think of, okay, well, how do I want my website to be performing after I launch the new version? Virtually everyone will say, well, at minimum, I just don't want to go backwards. But most marketers and most people signing off that kind of budget will say, no, we want our, our performance to increase and move forward. Um, so if that is the case, you know, if you, if, if you are all confident that you don't want to lose traffic and actually you might want to gain some, then you really need to speak to an expert right in the early stage of the project, you know, before you've even started planning the site structure or even kicked the project off. Because at that point, you will get the take 
from someone who can help, well, ask some challenging questions, really. So one of the areas that these often go wrong is um, content gets cut. Um, I'm, I'm painting broad strokes here. I'm overgeneralizing wildly, but quite often design or branding agencies do like to remove content, especially if a lot of the content that exists is maybe not that high quality or it's a bit old or it needs updating. And then, uh, when the business is faced with that um, uh, point of objection, they may go, well, we can either spend money in updating the content or actually maybe we can cut it out. That would be simpler. Now, cutting out content like that for if Google or other search engines, you know, see that content as being valuable and send traffic to that content, you know, cutting that content will stand a good chance that you'll lose that traffic full stop. So losing content is one of the, the most frequent ways of a migration going badly. Now, the next part is um, even if you decide to keep all of the content in the world, if, if your website's changing structure and all of the, the URLs or addresses of every page are changing, um, Google and other search engines have no idea where the new version of that page is unless we tell them. Um, and this is done um, via what we call a fair one redirect. So it's just a signal that the server sends to the user, uh, the browser or the search engine, sorry. And it says this page has permanently moved over here. Um, and when search engines encounter those, um, it helps them see that the content's moved. And uh, usually when that's done right, the value of that content will move with it. So, um, <clears throat> you know, very often developers will think about this too late in the process and they may redirect some kind of key pages. So say your key service pages, um, but they may then forget the blog or if you've got like a document library or a help section or FAQs and any content lost in that way, again, can cause uh, impact there. So in, in my experience, I would say that, you know, I've, I very often get called in to help fix these problems after they've happened. So when they someone realizes the new site's gone live and uh, it's, it's gone badly. Um, and there are a number of ways that we can check that, you know, check those elements to see, well, actually, um, it, can we recover this quickly? Because quite often the answer is yes. Um, for example, if the website has uh, Google Analytics or other analytics tracking software, we would look at well, what pages were receiving traffic before the migration. Do they still exist and can they be found at the same address? If the answer to either of those questions is no, then it's like, how do we recover that content and how quickly can we get the redirects in place? Um, I've managed to recover. I've worked with one consulting firm in the US um, 18 months before they spoke with me they lost 60% of their traffic from search engines overnight within three months through bringing back old content and writing new content and then fixing redirects. We'd, we'd got them back up to exactly where they were um, 18 months previous. So <clears throat> now obviously they would rather have not lost that traffic, but these things are recoverable. Um, and one of the things that I often see is, and sometimes sales teams at development agencies are great for this, is they, they tend to tell clients to expect a drop so if you're building a new website, you're going to lose, for example, 15% of traffic because that always happens. My response to that is no, it doesn't have to, not if it's planned right. Um, and for most businesses, the costs of employing an SEO at the start of the project to prevent these losses, they pay for themselves um, quite easily, actually, because you know if you're a business that turns over a lot of revenue and a lot of that's generated by the website, you know, even six weeks of disruption, if the migration's gone badly, can cost you quite dearly. So um, for the marketers involved, I think it's seek outside help and set expectations with project stakeholders that you know, 
um, we need to be thinking about this. We need to be budgeting for this or you'll regret it later. You don't have to say it in that way, but <laughs> that's the kind of key message. Oh, that's so interesting to understand. <clears throat> I think that's, that's definitely a good learning there. Involve an SEO good. tech expert early up in the product so you don't need to do these kind of mistakes when you're migrating. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's far easier not to. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you have so much uh, insights and knowledge around this. And uh, I can definitely recommend everybody to take part of your online material you have, both presentations and blog posts around those topics. So um, as a last question there, uh, uh, what uh, I know a lot of listeners want to check you out online and so on. Where can we send them? Uh, okay, um, cool. So my, I think Twitter is where I'm most active. Um, I, I, you know, it's my favorite network, I think. So uh, my handle is at chrisgreen87. Um, so that's where I kind of tweet and share a lot of my knowledge. Um, or via LinkedIn, which is the same as uh, chrisgreen87 is my profile on there. Um, or failing that, um, I write for State of Digital quite frequently. Um, so a lot of my content can be on there. I've also blogged quite heavily on tracking and analytics as well, um, something that businesses often really struggle with. So there's there's some kind of a lot of free advice on there that you might find useful. Um, or on the Footprint Digital blog, so footprintdigital.co.uk, um, there's quite a few elements on there around some more advanced conversion rate optimization bits and uh, published a few studies recently. So um, yeah, check me out on those. My, my um, direct messages are open. So um, if anyone wants to send me a message or has a question from what you've heard on only too happy to share my knowledge as you can tell i'll talk about this stuff for hours <laughs> yeah and uh it's so good to listen to you well um i have to thank you so much chris for sharing all this knowledge and letting us know about the trends and what to do and what to avoid doing concerning seo and migration <laughs> of websites thank you so much uh sharing your thank you for having me this. no i really enjoyed it thanks for having me it's been great Thank you for listening to Lead Generation Strategies for B2B tech companies. Don't forget to subscribe. You will find it where podcasts live. Discover how we can help you with your lead generation activities at brightvision.com.